appreciate the uh, work that the instruments do, coming out for practices on Saturday mornings, that they might use their uh, abilities, their God-given abilities, to uh, minister among us and and help uh, facilitate our corporate worship. So I really, I do appreciate it. I know uh, know the sacrifice you make. Come by here many Saturday mornings, and and uh, you show up early and you work hard. Of course, anybody that works for Ron works hard, but it makes me work hard. But uh, but I do appreciate you coming out and uh, and ministering to us. Take out your handout out of the bulletin, if you would, please. Put that in there for you to follow along. <clears throat> we are uh, we are working through a series of questions that have arisen uh, commonly in our minds with regard to uh, this great and glorious and yet uh, mysterious and difficult doctrine of election. This whole side study has arisen out of our exposition of uh, the book of Romans and in particular chapter 9. By the grace of God, we're going to finish those four questions that remained on that list today. And uh, Ron gave me plenty of time, so there's no excuse. Uh, we will finish those today, Lord willing, and then uh, come back for one more question next week that has arisen in many minds with regard to the doctrine of election and in particular uh, what happens to those who die in infancy. And so we want to come back and, and address that very uh, important uh, topic next week. And then following that, uh, we'll return back to uh, Romans chapter 9 and uh, complete our exposition of the ninth chapter. On that handout there at the top, you'll notice I placed a quote for you that I came across this week while I was uh, doing some additional preparation uh, <clears throat> for this morning. You see it there. It is that the doctrine of election is not meant to confuse the Christian, but to comfort him. And I think that's a really important thing for us to keep in mind. Uh, all of this, uh, this great and glorious doctrine, and by the way, we have only scratched the surface. We have not exhausted this in any way, shape, or form. And, and in fact, every answer begs another ten questions. And uh, so I'm just forcing myself not to continue to spiral out of control and, uh, and chase all of those various rabbits. But it is important to keep that central thing in mind that, that Paul introduces this great and glorious uh, doctrine of election here in the ninth chapter of the book of Romans, and he does it to comfort us. To comfort us, so that is to explain how he can so confidently assert that God's promises to us that he has elaborated in Romans 8 and, and prior are absolutely certain for his people. And uh, that, whole, uh, that whole discussion is necessitated by the, by the fact of Israel. Israel is, is a, uh, presents a quandary that has to be explained. That is, how can the chosen people of God, prepared through the Holy Scriptures to receive their Messiah when He finally came, how is it that they could reject Him? And how is it that they could remain in such um, opposition to Him even down to this very day? How is that possible? And what does that mean for the promises of God? And so Paul picks up that topic in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and we're going to continue to follow his argumentation there. But, but dealing now just these last few weeks and this week and next with some of the 
ancillary questions that arise from the great doctrine of election. You know, one of my desires as we pursue this study, and I guess it's my desire as we pursue any study here, is that it forces us to open our Bibles. Now, this is a Bible church, and, uh, and we are about uh, the Word of God. We want to understand the Word of God because it is the only reality that we have. It is the only solid anchor in this crazy, crazy world. And so we need to understand what God has said, what He means by what He says, and then how does that eternal truth apply to us here and now in our day and age. So it's always our desire, and it's my desire for sure in this study of the doctrine of election, that we open up our Bibles and that we examine carefully what they have to say about this glorious topic. So some of you have come up to me and you've said, uh, man, I've got I to gotta rethink some things. I've got to go back. I've got to look at some passages. And I've, I smile, at least to myself, and I think, good. That's what I want to hear. I want you uh, throughout the week to be back in your Bible. And, and I want you to be, I want us all to be like the Bereans of Acts chapter 17, where Luke describes them there as being no, more noble than those in Thessalonica. How were they more noble? Well, Luke says in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. That is, they were they were prepared to receive the revelation of God and they searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things would be so. And that's the attitude that we uh, need to have as well. And that is that we need to be ready to hear from God. We need to show up here on a Sunday morning ready to hear from God. And then the things that come across this pulpit we need to open our Bibles both, both now and during the week, and we need to compare what we've heard to what the Word of God says and to see whether these things be so. So I want you to test me in these things, okay? Just because I said it doesn't make it true. In fact, if it relied only on the fact that I said it, I would suggest to you that you should run, okay? Don't ever rely on the words of men. Rely only upon the Word of God. Okay, So be a Berean and test these things and see whether they be so. Open your Bibles to John chapter 3 and verse 16. If you're using a pew Bible, page 1061. John chapter 3, verse 16, page 1061. It is my intention, by the grace of God, to finish the last four questions that appeared on your list. <clears throat> Now, just by way of review, I can't help myself, but by way of review, first question, okay, and this will be a short review, I promise you. First question of these six, and I remind you, just in, particularly if you're new with us this morning, these questions were generated by my invitation uh, several weeks ago to, to email in questions that have arisen with regard to the doctrine of election. And so those questions came flooding in, and I've distilled them down. I think I've arrived at the, at the basic gist of those questions, and so here we are. First question. How does God harden the non-elect? How does God harden the non-elect? Romans 9 in verse 18 clearly says that he does. The answer to that, and I've, I've written it out for you here, okay? The answer is that God hardens a sinner by not interceding, by not interceding to enable that sinner to repent and respond to the gospel. God merely leaves them in their state of rebellion and unbelief gradually hardening them by continued exposure to the truth. That is, as God continues to 
show himself to them both in natural revelation and special revelation, the preaching of the gospel, it hardens their heart. It builds their obstinacy to the truth of who God is. That is how God hardens the non-elect. Second question that we looked at at length last time was, God, does God desire all men to be saved? We looked at a number of passages that seem to indicate that on the surface, but as we looked at them in their context, we came to see that that's not, it's not as simple as that. And so we boiled all that down for you with this very simple statement here that God desires not all men without exception, but all men without distinction to be saved. That is, that it is not every single individual that ever has and ever will live that God desires to be saved and is somehow unable to fulfill that desire, but that the statements where it talks about all men, that God is speaking in His revelation about all men without distinction. That is, all kinds of men, all types of men, all classes of men. That is what He desires to gather around His great throne, a worshiping people drawn from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And the book of Revelation shows us that in the end, that's indeed what God does. His desire is fulfilled. That takes us to our third question this morning. In what sense does God love the world? In what sense does God love the world? Probably the most famous Verse in the entire New Testament is John 3.16. There used to be a guy with funny-looking hair that would hold up a sign in the end zone at football games. Do you remember him? Yeah, he was an interesting character and, uh, and came to an interesting end. Um, but in any case, it's a very well-known verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. This verse speaks not just of the breadth of God's love, and it does when it speaks of the world, but it speaks more stunningly of its intensity, the intensity of God's love, the depth of God's love. For God so loved the world. He so loved the world that He gave his only begotten Son. God loves the world of sinful men. A world that is in open and unrepentant hostility and rebellion to His sovereign rule. God loves this world of men. How much? That's really what John is talking about here. How much does God love this world? He loves the world so much that He is willing to give the most precious thing that He has, His only begotten Son. God so loved this world with such depth, with such intensity, with such passion, that He gave His only begotten Son to die on a cross to redeem people. That is how much God loves this world. Now, some people deny the reality that God loves all people, that God loves all people. But I think the scripture is clear that God does love all people. And in fact, I think the idea that God loves all people is is very much a part of this passage here in John chapter three. God loves the human race, beloved. There's no question about it. He loves 
the human race. And the fact that he loves that race is demonstrated by the fact that he sent his son into the world and he sent his son into the world. Look at verse 17, not to condemn the world, not to judge the world, but on a search and rescue mission. Look, God did not send the son into the world to judge it, but that the world should be saved through him. God loves this world and he loves sinful mankind in open rebellion against him. There's absolutely no question of that fact. Jesus himself said, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. God did not become a man that he might condemn mankind. Second person of the triune Godhead took on human flesh and stepped into space and time, not to condemn, but to save, to rescue Helpless, rebellious sinners. God loves this world. First Timothy chapter one, verse 15 says it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came to save. He came to save. Titus chapter three, verse four. But when the kindness of God, our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. He saved us. God loves the world. He sent His Son into the world to save. But God obviously doesn't save everybody. God obviously doesn't save everybody. The Scriptures are unanimously clear on that as well. So in what way? In what way does He love those who reject Him? I think that's really the source of the question. In what way does God the Father love those who reject Him and His Son? The answer to that is there in your handout. The answer is what theologians call common grace. Common grace. God loves His creation. And because of His love for that creation, He grants to those people who hate Him who despise him, who want nothing to do with him, those people in open rebellion against him, those people who would kill him if they could, he grants even to them long lives, healthy children, good marriages, food, shelter, happiness, peace, prosperity, lawful governments, and on and on it goes. God does not snuff them out. God pours out on them expressions of His love over and over and over again. God loves His creation. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. We are to love our enemies, Jesus said. And when we love our enemies, we are modeling the reality of our sonship. That is that we belong to God, because when we love our enemies, we're doing exactly what God does. He loves his enemies. How? 
does he love his enemies? In what way does he love his enemies? Jesus says, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That is, he blesses them. He provides for them. He cares for them. Paul says in Acts chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, the same idea. He says there in generations gone by, God permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without a witness. And that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons of satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God loves his enemies. How? By pouring out expressions of his kindness and mercy and goodness upon them. Every day, every day, the wicked who want nothing to do with him are on the receiving end of a vast bounty of his love. God loves men. He loves them. Now, as we think through this whole question of the love of God, we have to be careful here that we do not assert that in order for God to love the human race, He must provide equal opportunities and outcomes for all people. Okay, listen to that. We need to be careful when we speak about the love of God that we do not assert that in order for God to love the human race, He must provide equal opportunity and outcomes for all people. Otherwise, He doesn't love. That is a fallacy. It is a fallacy of logic and it is a fallacy of reality because certainly that is not true in the natural realm. God does not provide equal opportunity and outcome in the natural realm, does he? In the sovereignty of God, doesn't he determine great differences among humans? Great differences in intellect? Great differences in Strength, great differences in beauty, great differences in wealth, great differences in health, great differences in longevity. All of these things and more, God differentiates in the natural realm. Yet God loves, the scripture is clear, He loves all people. He pours out His goodness on all people. So, Equal opportunity and equal outcome is not a definition of what it means for God to love humanity. It's not the way He operates in the natural realm, and, beloved, it's not the way He operates in the spiritual realm either. Look around you. Look around you. Do you believe God loves you any less because you're shorter than the person next to you? Or not as intelligent as the person next to you? are not as beautiful as the person you'd like to be. Does God love you any less? We would answer, no, of course not. Of course not. So equal opportunity, equal outcome is not a definition of the love of God. God loves the world of sinful men. And He loves them temporally through His common grace. He loves eternally His elect by rescuing them from their bondage to sin. From their bondage to sin. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, For He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, 
in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay? So God loves all men temporally. He loves His elect eternally. Question number four. Well, then, does the gospel have a universal call associated with it? Is there a universal call to the gospel? That is, is there a universal invitation to receive salvation? In what sense can you say to someone that if they will repent of their sin and turn and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved? Is that something you can say? With confidence, can I say it up here? Can I invite you to come and receive the Lord Jesus Christ, which, by the way, I do? The answer is yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, you are compelled to say such things because God tells you to say such things. He says to go into all the world and do what? Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Is there a universal call associated with the gospel? Yes, absolutely there is. You know, in his perfections, God is characterized by love, grace, mercy, pity, compassion, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, tenderness. And he displays all of these perfections through a sincere offer of the gospel for all who will turn to him in faith. The last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, nearly the nearly the last verse of the last chapter of the last book. Says, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. The prophet there says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Whoever is thirsty, come and drink. Matthew chapter 28, or excuse me, chapter 11 and verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden and what? I will give you rest. I will give you rest. There is absolutely a universal invitation of the gospel for anyone, for anyone who is thirsty to come and to drink and to receive healing for their soul. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 33. Page 861, if you're using a pew Bible. Ezekiel chapter 33. This is one of those passages that came in on the emails. Ezekiel 33, beginning in verse 10. Now, the context of this book is that the nation of Israel has shown themselves to be hard-hearted to the things of God. They have consistently and repeatedly refused His invitations of grace. The calls of the prophets to turn back 
to turn back, O Israel, to return to the Mosaic Covenant, to, to do again those first things. And now, God has sent upon them through the nation of Babylon this terrible judgment that the prophets have been saying is coming. He has destroyed the nation. He has shattered the temple, the city. He has carried away into captivity the people. And now they find themselves here in Ezekiel 33 in the midst of their misery. And God addresses them. He says, Now as for you, son of man, that is the prophet Ezekiel, say to the house of Israel, Thus you have spoken, saying, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we are rotting away in them. How then can we survive? That is, we have no hope. There is no hope for us. Our sin is so great, our rebellion, our wickedness is so great, it has is, is fallen upon us. The judgment has come that the prophet said was come, and there's nothing we can do. We are hopeless. We are lost. We are doomed. Verse 11, in the midst of such despair, son of man, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? God calls on them to turn, to come to Him, to receive healing. Why? How? God is a God of goodness. God is every bit a God of goodness and compassion as He is a God of holiness and wrath. He's not a little bit wrathful and a little bit compassionate. He is fully consumed in His wrath and He is fully consumed in His compassion. Evil is a great source of grief to our compassionate God. Evil grieves His heart. He takes no delight in it. Maybe we can illustrate this theological tension this way. God in His holiness cannot look upon man's sin with acceptance. Would you agree to that? In His holiness, He cannot look upon the sin of man and accept it. He hates it. It repulses Him. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13 so also because of His compassion, He cannot look upon the sinner's doom with pleasure. In the same way that His sin cannot be looked upon with acceptance because of God's holiness, so also the sinner's doom brings Him no pleasure because of His compassion. Our God is a great God. 
He is high and lifted up. He is not like you or me. Beloved, God ordains not just results, but the means by which those results are accomplished. God ordains the results to be absolutely sure. And God also ordains the means by which those results are accomplished. The appeal to turn to God and live is the means by which God has ordained that He will draw people to Himself. It is His means. It is His perfect plan. It is the universal invitation of the Gospel. It is the call to whoever is thirsty to come and to drink. To whoever who is weary to come and find rest for your soul. For the nation of Israel to turn back from their sin and return to their God is the means by which God accomplishes His results. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says it this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the preaching to save those who believe. It is the wisdom of God that brings about gospel proclamation as the means by which He has chosen to draw to Himself those who will be saved. Verse 27, same chapter. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Gospel preaching, in order to be gospel preaching, has to have a universal call for people to come and receive salvation. Come and be healed. Come and be saved. Come and drink. Come and find rest for your soul. But in the mystery of God, in the mystery of God, that universal call will only become effectual in those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the earth that their redemption will bring glory to His name. This is the mystery. This is the glory of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Question number five. Does this glorious doctrine lead to boasting? Does the doctrine of election lead to boasting? Some people will postulate that. They will say that this doctrine is dangerous because it creates spiritual boasting. I'm elect and you're not kind of an idea. This doctrine, truly understood and believed, is the death of all human pride. 
Some years ago, I wrote a tract called Election, the Ultimate Pride Killer. Election, the Ultimate Pride Killer. This doctrine, more than any other that I can think of, is death to human pride. It leaves no room for boasting. It removes all things upon which we might hang our hat and say, I'm saved because. Ephesians chapter 2, page 1170 in your pew Bible. Listen to how Paul describes the elect here. This is a description of the elect. By the way, I've said this before, but it bears repeating, and that is election does not equal redemption. Listen here how he describes the elect before their redemption. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's an interesting description, isn't it? Dead in your rebellion and sin. Walking enslaved to the evil one. A son of disobedience. Living in the lust of your flesh. Indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. By nature a child of wrath. That doesn't sound like anything to boast about in my book. But God. Verse 4, do you see it? But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Is the doctrine of election a place to boast? Well, if you'd like to boast in your sin, then go for it. If you'd like to boast in the slavery that characterized your life before Christ, go for it. But God, verse 4, do you see it? But God, so that no one should boast. Back to 1 Corinthians One for one more look at it. Page 1141. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Page 1141, 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, Not many mighty, not many noble. That is, dumb. 
poor, socially unacceptable. The offscourings of humanity. Nothing in your pedigree, not your birth, not your social status, not your bank account, not your intellect, not your wisdom, nothing. Nothing. Verse 27, look at it again. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. What are the foolish and the weak here that he's talking about? It's me. It's you. The base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are. Why? Verse 29. That no man should what? Boast before God. Go for it. Boast all you like. You base, despised, foolish, ignorant, offscouring of humanity. Boast away. Verse 30, but by his doing. Underline that in your Bible. But by his doing. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in who? Boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. Is election a source of pride and boasting? Not even close. A proper understanding and belief in the doctrine of God's sovereign election destroys human pride. You have nothing. Nothing to commend yourself to God. There is nothing within you, either now or in the future, actual or foreseen. There is nothing that attracts God to you. In fact, there is everything that should repel him. Everything. In your unredeemed humanity, you are a stench in the nostrils of God. A child of wrath, he says. A child of wrath. You deserve eternal damnation. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. But by His doing, by His doing, I am in Christ Jesus. Let me boast, but only in the glory of God. Beloved, that's why this doctrine is so glorious. God loves this doctrine because it gives all glory and credit to Him. As a child of God, you should love it too. Learn to love it. Revel in it. Glory in it. Sing about it. Read about it. Think on it. Let it inform your prayers. 
and marvel. And marvel that God saved a sinner like you. We're going to finish chapter, or uh, question six. I told you, Jeremy, we're going to do it. Sixth question. What effect does this doctrine have upon evangelism? What effect does this doctrine have upon evangelism? I mean, isn't the doctrine of election a hindrance to evangelism? If only those who have been elect before the foundation of the, of the earth are going to come to faith in Christ, what's the point of preaching the gospel? And if those that are elect are certainly going to come to faith in Christ, and he will lose not one, he says, Jesus says, John 6, then what in the world am I doing? Why don't I just stay home? God's going to do it all anyway. That betrays a profound misunderstanding. A profound misunderstanding of this glorious doctrine. Is the doctrine of election a hindrance to evangelism? Improperly understood, yes. Improperly understood, absolutely. Because it can be a covering for hard-heartedness towards the lost. It can become a justification for inactivity and laziness. Absolutely. In fact, one William Carey, missionary to India, founder of the modern missions movement, experienced just such a thing. Carey was ordained in 1787 to the gospel ministry and soon thereafter joined a local pastor's association. That was his first mistake. But he did. And when he attempted to persuade the association that they should engage in world evangelism, this is what the older men told him. Sit down, young man, and respect the opinion of your seniors. If the Lord wants to convert the heathen, he will do it without your help. Now, technically, that's true, by the way. That is technically true. God does not need any of us. But it betrayed a spirit of arrogance and pride and misunderstanding of this doctrine. God ordains not only the end, but the means to the end. And He had ordained this man to be a great gospel preacher in a part of the world that desperately needed the light of the gospel. Properly understood, the doctrine of election is a glorious motivator to boldly preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to do so with the confidence of knowing that according to God's timing and God's purpose, your preaching will have success. Now that's motivating. That's motivating to know that that when the word of Christ 
contacts the ear of the elect of God according to his timing, that person will believe. Now, what about those people who appear to believe and then later fall away? What about those people who appear to believe and later fall away? A couple of weeks ago, I was talking with a guy who was telling me about a high school friend who several years ago was seemed like he was on fire for the things of the Lord. He was just he was just excited about and talking about the things of Christ all the time. They lost contact with each other and were reunited just a short time ago. And now that guy who was on fire wants nothing to do with Christ. Wants nothing at all to do with Christ. How do you explain all of that? Christ has explained it for us. Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, page 997. This, by the way, I think is the definitive passage with regard to the topic of evangelism and election. You need to understand what is written here in Mark chapter 4. <coughs> this is the parable of the soils. By the way, there are 38 parables, just so you get some understanding here. 38 parables recorded in the three what's called synoptic or common view Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Of those 38 parables, there are only three that are common to all three of those Gospels. This is one of those parables. This parable occurs in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. The parable of the soils. This one's key. In fact, in verse 13, Mark chapter 4, Jesus said to them, Do you not understand this parable? And how will you understand all the parables? That is, that if you can understand this one, you have the key to unlock all the others. If you don't understand this one, you won't understand any of them. And he began to teach again by the sea, verse 1, and such a great... A very great multitude gathered to him. Then he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And it came about that as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road and the birds came and ate it up. And other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. The idea here is that there was a limestone ledge and a small amount of soil on top. And after the sun had arisen, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. Verse 7, the other seed fell among the thorns. The thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. And other seeds fell into the good soil. And as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Must have been fabulous to be there to hear him preach. Says the sower went out to sow. He scattered seed here, there, and the other place. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. See you again. Verse 10, as soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you, it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are on the outside, get everything in parables. 
in order that while seeing they may see not and perceive, and while hearing they may hear not and understand, lest they return and be forgiven. By the way, that's Isaiah chapter 6. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear it, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word that has been sown in them. And in a similar way, these are the ones who seed was sown in the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed is sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word and the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60 and 100 fold. Various responses to gospel preaching. Some people hear it and they just jump up. They're ready to go. And it looks like life is there and and all is going to be well, and yet it fizzles out. Peter's out. Sin comes in and crowds it out. But some, verse 20, but some bring forth fruit. 30, 60. A hundredfold. That is, not everybody brings them out the same amount of fruit, but all bring forth fruit. You are somewhere in this parable this morning, by the way. Every single one of you are here in this parable. You are either the, the road that is the path between the fields where all that has been said up to this point, Satan has snatched it out of your mind. You'll walk out of here in a few more minutes and it made no impact on you. Others of you will hear and you're going to get all excited about what you've heard. In a few more minutes, I'm going to say, why don't you come to this lighted cross so we can talk more about these things with you. And, and some of you will stream over there and you're going to be so excited. You're going to make a profession of allegiance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to get excited too. But your, your life, it may, be, it may be all a facade. When the persecution comes, when the trials come, when the troubles come, when the, when the deceitfulness of riches come, when the pressures of life come upon you, you're going to abandon it and walk away. But some, some hear the word and it begins to produce a harvest. 30, 60, 100 fold. It can't be prevented. It can't be prevented. Verse 26, and he was saying the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil and goes to bed at night and gets up by the day and the seed sprouts up and grows. How he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, and then the mature grain in the head. That's growth. 
You've seen time-lapse photography. That was time-lapse audio growth. Just gross. Just gross. Among God's elect, it produces a crop. 30, 60, 100 fold. But we just keep casting seed. Just walking along, throwing handfuls of seed everywhere. Some of it falls on the path. Some of it falls on the thin soil above the rocky ledges. Some of it falls in the soil that's full of thorn roots. But we don't know that. We just keep throwing the the seed. Just keep throwing the seed. But in some of the soil, the Spirit of God has so broken it up that when it receives the seed of the Word of God, it is united. And then, and then automatically, we don't even know really how it happens. John, or Jesus says, John 3, when he speaks to Nicodemus, that the, the Spirit is like the wind. It blows. You know, we don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it goes. It just happens. Up it comes. Understand this, beloved. The gospel will grow in the soil of the elect. It will grow. That's why election, probably understood, is not a hindrance to evangelism. It is a motivation to evangelism. Those who know me well know I'm a Cowboys fan, and those who know me very well know that I hate to watch them lose. And in fact, I hate so bad to watch them lose that I turn it off before I lose my sanctification. (laughs) I hate losers. (laughs) Especially high-priced ones. But see, evangelism, you can't lose. You can't lose. Because it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on you. You just scatter the seed, scatter the seed, scatter the seed. The gospel will grow in the soul of the elect. Paul says in Romans 1.16, it is the power of God unto salvation. Acts 13.48, when the Gentiles heard the preaching of the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many has been appointed to eternal life believed. Love to be on the winning team. Second, understand the soil will or the gospel will only grow in the soil of the elect. It will grow in the soil of the elect, and it will only grow in the soil of the elect. It won't grow on the road. It won't grow on the rocky soil. It won't grow on the thorny soil. It may look like it at first, but it won't grow. But we just keep throwing seed. Throwing seed. Throwing seed. Because third, we need to understand that election is God's responsibility. This is something He reserves to Himself. He doesn't share it with us. 
He does not share this with us. This is his prerogative and his alone. But our responsibility is to preach the gospel and to urge obedience to it. Repent of your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is my message to you this morning. For there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's Christ and Christ alone. You have no other hope. None. Because as Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. With the full authority and confidence of the Word of God, I say to you this morning, if you will call upon the name of the Lord, He will save you. He will save you. Come. If you are thirsty in your soul, you are thirsty in your soul. Come. If you are weary of trying to go at your own, trying to satisfy God on your own, if you're ready to give up on that, come. Come. Come right over here. Love, this is a glorious doctrine. The glorious doctrine. There is a danger. The danger is when you try to smooth out all the wrinkles. God is at peace. He is at peace with the truth of both His divine sovereignty in election and human responsibility. And as His children... We should be at peace with it too. I urge you to come. I beg you to come. Find relief for your soul. Let's pray. Our Father, may you unite the proclamation of your word with a believing heart. Pour forth your mercy and grace, our Father, we beseech you. We beg you. Grant us not what we deserve. Grant us mercy in Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen.